There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born in great opportunity. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of On Justice Podcast. I'm Jordan Redavid, and joining me, as usual, is my law partner, John Fisher. I hope you're doing well. There has been a bit of a hiatus in the normal output of our uh, podcast production, but it's with good reason. We've been super active in trial lately, and everybody's busy with courts and hearings and depositions and the like, but we're a trial firm, and so when duty calls, we got to go. This year, actually, John, I was just looking before we jumped on the air. I've done five different jury trials. I think as a firm, we've done six. You've been in most of the ones I've done, um, all of which in Florida or the USVI, and we've had some pretty good success. I just want to stop and talk about, I guess, the most recent one we had, which was um, a first time for me. I don't think you had done it either, which is like you're trying two separate lawsuits that have been consolidated for purposes of trial. And by way of background, although we're going to get, you know, get into the weeds a little bit, just to have some context. This was a case in Miami-Dade, Florida. It involved a car accident where we represented both the driver and the front seat passenger. And they had filed separate lawsuits. They had different injuries. But ultimately, it made sense to try their damages portion together. Uh, and so that's what we did. Yeah, yeah it was a little more. Yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah, the number of trials, I think, you know, you're ahead of me. I've only had four this year. But, you know, they feel like they've been, you know, big results. Obviously, we had the McDonald's chicken nugget, the one that was bifurcated. I got the $5 million verdict in the VI. Now, this is what we just had two weeks ago. Collectively, for our two claimants, we it was about $1.614 million was the combined verdict. So, you know, really good opportunity to get in there on a case, which this is where it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times they talk about, you know, the plaintiff lawyers, we're the ones being unreasonable. We were willing to settle this case globally for both claimants for $50,000. Right. They said no. And we went to trial. And, and you know, kind of a nuance about this case. This, this case was in Miami-Dade. Obviously, our clients, you know, they're, they're two uh, born and raised in Miami barbers. They were at, at lunch going, coming home or back from lunch, back to the shop. And <clears throat> there was a vehicle that caused basically it was a hit and run incident. We had were able to locate the vehicle who was involved in the hit and run. And, you know, we did everything we had. We had uh, bystander eyewitnesses that chased the vehicle down, uh, saw what happened. They ran through a red light. Our clients were perpendicular, causing another client to crash. Now, we talk a lot about trial, but I think we forget sometimes like pre-trial, you can win a lot of big battles going into trial. Now, this trial ended up being a damages only trial. Now that's not how it started. Uh, it was a, there was a liability defense, but they didn't really defend on damages. And because, you know, I guess the, the thought is, well, if you're not, you know, the person who caused the incident, why do you care how hurt they are? And so we, in Florida, we, we moved for summary judgment offensively as the plaintiff's lawyer to say, look, not only is legal causation established, not only is permanency, because in Florida, you've got to have a permanent injury in order to get those non-economic damages in a motor vehicle crash. We, we basically established all those points, and the judge essentially agreed, granted summary judgment against all their affirmative defenses, um, the causation for the injuries, permanent nature of the injuries. So the only issue really left at trial was liability, meaning, i.e., they claimed it wasn't them and um, the damages. Now, in the litigation, they claimed that basically there was no impact. They didn't hit the other car. 
you know, there's a lot of, there's a multitude of, we had cell phone triangulation data. We've got the eyewitnesses. Her job was right coming out of the parking lot she was coming from. She didn't come back to work for a week. Couldn't explain her whereabouts ever. And, you know, they, they kind of hung their head on like, look, there's no damage to the front of our car. Right. We didn't have photographs of the front of the car. So we, we could, you know, there was an allegation that it impacted the other car that ultimately hit into a head on collision with our guy. And they, they basically said it wasn't us. Well, what we found, I mean, they actually tried to get summary judgment that we win. They, when she turned in the vehicle, the least vehicle, the defense lawyer for the defendant went out and got this information. And what it proved is that this lawyer, this individual was committing a fraud. So not only did she have damage to the front of the car, she had, it was noted by the, the shop, collision damage up front. And, you know, and we basically presented that to the court as a plaintiff's lawyer saying, look, this is fraud in the court. You know, you see it a lot of times with defense lawyers claiming plaintiffs don't talk about their injuries. They forget about something from a year before and they get them to dismiss their case. Well, we did the opposite. We said, look, the only thing that the defendants can lie about is liability. We had a hit and run incident with all this information. They tried to get summary judgment. And now we know what she said under, under oath. It's unequivocally false, fraudulent testimony. And the judge agreed and uh, struck their pleadings uh, and entered a default with respect to liability. So that was it. So all the remaining issues that were out. So we went to trial with they had no expert. They had no witnesses. And they and, you know, it, what's interesting is then they tried to play the, you know, they called it an alleged injury. And it's like, well, no, no, it's not alleged. The court instruction. So I think that really played into our favor of, of what was done in pre-suit, because I think arguably if they had defended this case appropriately and had, you know, uh, a defense expert it didn't there, you know there were some issues with any case i think with any trial case you have some issues so i think that the work that we did in pre-trial allowed us to get in there and really you know kind of fight for our guys um you know a trial now jordan you know you you've obviously tried cases you were in, in lee county uh, for another one but the jury pool in this particular instance in miami-dade county was kind of a unique jury pool one that i think you and i and, and then since the number of trials that we've had have never seen a jury pool like this. You know, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm sitting here impressed. You have a remarkable way of condensing four years of litigation into four minutes. Uh, <laughs> before we, because I agree the jury selection component was very unusual, something I hadn't experienced in Miami-Dade County before, but, but I just want to touch on a few things that you mentioned because the pre-suit process of this case stands out to me in a, in a few ways. And like looking back Monday morning quarterbacking this, I think there's some, some lessons to be learned. Unfortunately, we, we benefited from all of them, but to spot similar opportunities in the future, you know, for people out there, if you do automobile accident cases. So the first one was this case starts with two guys in a car uh, stopped at a red light and a Cadillac comes at them and causes a head on collision. We took this case under the assumption and belief based on the evidence we had that it was the Cadillac's fault. We didn't know why he blew the light, came across traffic and caused the collision. Um, and our clients, you know, they're not sitting there anticipating impact at any given moment. So it's not like they were paying astute attention, but our, our driver client did remember another vehicle passing through the intersection and cutting up the road going north right before the impact. And so, we took this case thinking our primary defendant would be the one who actually impacted our clients. And it turned it out being someone who cut through an intersection and fled. Someone who, like you said, caused the accident, but ran. They never even hit anybody though. Well, I shouldn't say never hit anybody. They didn't hit our client. Um, that's a weird type of case because you start 
pointing your finger at one party and then based on what they start telling you, this guy starts reporting, was it me? Somebody cut us off. You start matching that with what our client said. Well, who is it? And I want to give a shout out to Keela, Keela Smith, um, a senior trial lawyer and associate in our office. This was the first case we gave her to work up, the very first one. And Keela's a, an accomplished lawyer, was before she ever joined us, but primarily in the criminal defense realm. So we gave her this, what seemed like run-of-the-mill car crash case. And I think she applied all of her skepticism, like healthy skepticism and investigatory uh, skills to this case. And she was able to uncover who the true at-fault driver was, the most at-fault driver, the one who caused the hit and run. That was no easy task. And I, I just don't want to gloss over it because that required getting cell, uh, cell phone location information, having somebody interpret that. That required identifying eyewitnesses. We, we deposed two different eyewitnesses who could corroborate, and that involved obtaining evidence from the dealership where the true at-fault party and ultimate defendant that we went to trial against, where they returned their vehicle. And Keela had to not only like find all of these opportunities, but synthesize it into a theory that made sense to basically to get at the truth. And that is, that's four years of investigative work that I know a lot of other lawyers might be inclined to just say, it's too much, it's too expensive, it might seem speculative. That work single-handedly turned the case from potentially a zero because the, the person who actually crashed our clients head on may not have had much fault at all. A jury may not have seen any. Turned it from a potential zero to this hero verdict. And so I, I want to give credit where it's due in that, in that component uh, part. Then you said you mentioned some of the pretrial rulings, and I think it's important to, to give credit where it's due. I, I, I think summary judgment is too often viewed by plaintiff's lawyers as something that they have to be on the defensive about because they're accustomed to defendants using it to either throw out all or part of their case. And customarily, that's what the majority of, of the summary judgment motions are aiming to do. But there is no rule that prohibits plaintiffs from taking advantage of the same mechanism. And so our firm really tries hard to identify those issues. It's never going to be the whole case. There's not just yeah. saying, a judge, I want summary judgment says I win for this amount. That's not a thing. But Cases have issues of duty, breach, causation, damages, permanency, as you mentioned, all of these little but significant components that we ultimately need to prove. And if you catch a defendant, to John's point, who's really only focused on liability, for example, and they're not really building up a defense for causation, damages, and permanency, that's a good opportunity to seek offensive partial summary judgment. And you guys did that successfully. I wasn't a part of that litigating pre-suit, but I, I was aware of it. And then the, the last thing I want to comment on pre-suit, which is highly unusual, I have never had it happen, so, is the fraud on the court using that offensively. If you have ever practiced personal injury law, especially in Florida, and especially in South Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, you are unfortunately all too, all too familiar with some of the defense lawyers' tactics to seize any opportunity of, like, forgetfulness to pervert that into fraud. Somebody's put deliberately withholding, they're trying to perpetuate this scheme on the court, undermine the integrity of the proceedings. They want to throw your case out any which way they can. So we're always putting the defensive. You know, client says one thing in a deposition and a medical record from 10 years ago says something else, they want to cry fraud, even if it's just honestly forgetting. In this instance, we had a defendant who lied, said that to you, you know, you just said, oh, I, even though that may have been my car, I wasn't there, caught in a lie. My car had no body damage, caught in another lie. 
And we use that to package it to the judge. And there's a great uh, concurring opinion out of the Second District Court of Appeal, and I forget the judge's name who wrote it. So not binding, but persuasive. That from a few years ago, it said this particular doctrine, fraud in the court, should be applied equal handedly. It's most commonly we see it being used by defendants to throw out lawsuits. But if a defendant does commensurate misconduct, they should have their defenses thrown out. And that's what happened. This judge had the decency, candidly, to do what the law required, what was fair under the facts and what the law supported. And even though it's an unusual ruling, um, it was the right thing. And so I just, you know, it took four years to get to trial. Yes, COVID was a part of that. But I think the lessons to learn here are make the most of the information that's available to you and make the most of the time that's available to you. Because, you know, the work that Keela and also Diana, the paralegal that works with Keela, this was also Diana's first case at our firm. The work that they did on this case is so remarkable. I don't know. I think we could go another 10 years. Um, and this is not to minimize anybody's ability. It's just so unlikely that you could take a potential nothing or low value case because of you know liability issues and turn it into this $1.6 million thing. So I just wanted to, to touch on those things. So yeah, jury selection, let's flash forward a bit. Because every case with a jury needs to start with picking it. And John's right. This case is in, you know, for the trial lawyers out there, this may just be ingrained into your brain. But for the people out there who are lawyers, maybe you're transactional or you're a law student thinking you want to be a trial lawyer, venue, venue, venue. You know, you can have the same case on the same facts. And if it's in two different venues, even in the same state, especially Florida, you might get two completely different outcomes. Right. So this matters. Who's in your jury pool, basically? And in Miami-Dade County, we tried a ton of cases there, maybe more than most of uh, any other venue. We had come to anticipate that the, the, the veneer, the panel of prospective jurors, would run the gamut between age, race, ethnicity, education, sophistication, you know, whether they're transient or born and raised, you name it, because they're pulling from all of Miami-Dade County, and it's, it's a global melting pot. It's a, it's a diverse place. This jury panel was the complete opposite of that. I won't guess and say what it looked like, but this is what it was. It was predominantly white, if not almost exclusively, um, almost exclusively people who were, let's say, 28 or older um, and leaning on the older side of that spectrum, almost entirely people with substantial educational and professional, you know, trade history. Uh, most of, many of which, I want to say half of the pool was like C-suite executive, CFO, C CEO, yep. president, owner, all business, you know, owner. And the people that didn't fit the C-suite, they were, uh, we had an insurance fraud adjuster. We had another insurance adjuster. We had an insurance defense lawyer. We had a retired insurance defense lawyer who knew defense counsel. This was like highly, highly unusual. And then when you put aside that and you get past like the initial gasp, you still got to pick a, ju a jury. So yeah. John, maybe you can talk. We, we did secure Mary Sheedy, shout out to Mary. Uh, we tried to avoid trying cases without jury X these days. They're just great at what they do. Yeah, I just, you know, the more we try cases, the more like, you know, I like to have someone that can find out information about them. You know, you don't get that in federal court, which I think, you know, they, they literally like turn off the Internet, which I think is such a crock of shit, to be honest with you. I mean, like, don't find out who the jurors are, except for what I ask. You know, I mean, I, you know, I just. You know, I never understood that. It's like, you know, just because I'm in federal court, I'm an Article Three judge in an Article Three court, we have to really decline the ability to get a fair and impartial jury, which is really a constitutionally provided right uh, to have a, a fair and impartial jury. So, yeah, you know, I was asking the questions and 
you know, a lot of, it was a tough panel. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, we had a Supreme court justice brother on there. I mean, we had, you know, we had a bunch of doctors, but some people are like, Oh, I deal with all these like fraud workers comp cases. I was like, and it, you know, it, 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 it was, um, to, without having like, you know, jury X or a consultant to help assist with some of the stuff to find out information about who we're like on the fence about. And do you remember the game Minesweeper way back? Yeah. Dude, that's what it felt like. You were up there asking questions and it felt like I, they, all of them look the same on some level. They all are similar enough. I don't know which one has the mind under them or not. It was a very big challenge. Yeah, I felt like I clicked the first space and hit a bomb. Like, ah, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was challenging to get through it. You know, we, we kind of picked like, you know, so I, I think that we had a more conservative juror than I've been, been accustomed to in Miami. <clears throat> but... That being said, the fact that we, you know, because we didn't have those other issues to deal with because we addressed them pretrial, it's not that big of a deal, you know. Um, but had they had an, an expert and could talk about, you know, the gaps in treatment and all of these other things, it may have presented a problem, um, you know. So you kind of, we kind of had like the like comfort knowing that the work that we had done allowed us to come in there and, and say things like it, it, it didn't did not- hurt. Let me just say it didn't hurt that although we had to fight for it. Um, the judge was very reluctant, but she ultimately did what the law required. We were able to have six peremptory challenges going into this, not three, because we had two different clients. Right. And um, the law in Florida is each side gets three peremptories unless there's multiple parties um, that are not basically identical in interest on one side. And if so, then each side has to get, you know, you just keep going up proportionately. And here we had two separate plaintiffs. So I just wanted to point that out. It did help. It had we only had three, we might have been up shit's creek. <laughs> Six. Yeah, we might we might be having a very different podcast. Can we use all six? We used all six. Yeah, and I think and I think we used one in, for an alternate. I mean, it was just yeah. And let know, me say it, something it, else about the jury selection component. And this is for years because you just didn't have or we didn't have the resources and knowledge to know the benefits of a jury consultant because they're varied. They're not just like a, it's not some out of the box secret sauce. There's no crystal ball. But one of the things that they do, and Mary in particular, and it's very calming and it allows you to really concentrate on strategic decision making as opposed to tedious note taking is we have a court reporter there, obviously. Shout out to Jeannie Sanchez from Jeannie Reporting. We use them whenever we can for trials. Um, Jeannie brings real time. What does that mean? Real time is she will set up these mini iPads so that in real time, the judge and us and opposing counsel, we can all see the transcript. It's a rough, you know, she's typing contemporaneously, but it's pretty damn accurate. She's great at what she does. So we can see a transcript. So this means I don't have to take notes like I normally would. And Mary, or jury consultant, doesn't have to type her own notes. So everybody can concentrate on active listening and then take the same information and interpret it however we're going to, process it, and be able to give strategic insight as opposed to did he or she say this? I'm pretty sure I'm not sure. It's like you could just control F and find it. And I just want to point this out that if you don't have, if you're not using real time in trial, uh, we don't only, we only use it for jury selection. So let me be clear. But if you're not using that in jury selection, I think you're putting yourself at a, at an extreme disadvantage uh, because otherwise we always used to tease Keela that like, she's an exceptional note taker, but you're so distracted when you're doing that. So anyway, I just want to point Yeah. Out. I mean, cause they get like the, the timestamps that you can go back and call it up and pull it up when the judge has a question about a cause challenge and you can see it right there with the timestamp. So that, that I think is really helpful. What's your biggest nightmare? Like, judge, I'm moving for cause on juror X because she said this. I don't have that note. I don't I, have that in my notes. Right. We've Everybody's been, heard we've it. Been, we've been there. 
Case got uh, denied the cause challenge, lost the trial, went up on appeal. And uh, sure enough, they're like, it was right there. And you should have granted the cause challenge when it came back. So like oh, it can real help time, you. real time, real time. Yeah, it can, it can definitely help you. No, you know, and it's funny, you were talking about active listening. And I don't know if, you know, you, my brain hurt. This was this was one of the trials where actually like people were cracking jokes, juries laughing openly, like with all, everyone, which is very unusual because in the sense that we're not, that's generally not how I portray it in trial. I'm like, look, this is serious from, from drop, right? But our client's persona was like, he's a fun guy. He like wants to, 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 to be jokeful with, uh, you know, with the jury. But there was a part about the active listening where I was doing Dr. Nicholas Sweet. He's our neurologist and he brought out his, his, uh, the iPad, which was actually pretty cool. We connected it, started drawing on there, the brain, the various uh, um, components of the brain to talk about the brain injury. And we talked about the different lobes and the functionality. <clears throat> and I, I guess I missed one of the lobes he went through. And I was like, oh, judge, but what about this lobe? He was like, oh, I already did that. I think Jordan yeah. actually made a comment. I, I had to. Yeah, something about I, some, yeah, something about I had a brain injury. And like the jury laughs. And like, I was like, oh, sorry, doctor. You know, so it was a very, you know, sometimes those humbling moments in front of the jury look good, especially when I get up there and I'm, you know, I asked for $7.2 million or whatever I asked for, for my client. And well, that's how we broke, that's how we broke it up. So I represented one client, Jordan represented the other. And that's kind of how we did, which was good, but also bad because I like to confer with, with co-counsel before I sit down with the witness every time. And there were times like we wanted to keep up that presentation. So I didn't confer with Jordan, like, you know, moment to confer with counsel because we were technically co-counsel, but we wanted to give the appearance that we were separate. So, you know, that was the, I, I don't like to be a, alone on the Island because I don't pretend like I know every answer or if I think I missed something or if I didn't, you know, and I, and actually Jordan wrote me a note because I missed something and got it out on redirect, you know, and I did the same for him, you know, like kind of the buzzwords with an expert of a question. Yeah, it's a delicate dance, but ultimately yeah. I think, I think every trial starts from a strategy standpoint. We know the objective. The objective is to win. Easy. The hard part is deciding strategically how to execute. And you and I kind of late in the race decided to do something we had never done, which was to each represent independently each plaintiff and to mm -hmm. all extent possible keep that wall not while we're prepping you know behind the scenes at night or during recesses but in front of the jury because there's two components to it we believe that from a persuasiveness standpoint it would give a bit more legitimacy although there's nothing illegitimate about it otherwise but a bit more legitimacy to each individual's claims and it would it would reduce the likelihood that jurors would muddle them together or think it's just one big ask collectively and they're so we wanted to avoid that. And the second thing is um, we have a habit in single plaintiff trials of like, all right, you're going to do this, you do opening, and then I'll do this direct, you do this cross. And from lawyers, it's easy to, you know, assign the roles. But I often think about it from a juror's perspective. I imagine like maybe they want to hear one, one of the lawyers, one of us versus another, do a particular thing and then we don't give it. So this was a, a unique way for us to deliver uh, to divvy up the work. And even though we had multiple witnesses, we didn't have to do multiple examinations. Uh, but we did do multiple opening statements. So that was unique. Right. So this is the way that the judge decided to do it. And I think it was the right way, but it was John went up and presented the opening first for his client. And he did a great job with a uh, PowerPoint presentation of walking them through everything they're going to see in here. Then he, uh, he stopped. Then one of the two defense lawyers, because they kind of divvied it up the same way, she got up and did her opening as it related only to John's client. 
Then I had an opportunity to get back up for the second plaintiff, the driver I represented. I gave my opening and then the final defense lawyer did theirs. So that's unique. We had never done that before. I do think logistically it worked fine. Clearly the jury understood who represented who. And I think right from jump, it allowed the jury to, to split the plaintiffs into two camps. But quick side note here, um, I, I successfully, thankfully, passed the Virgin Islands bar examination. But in order to get licensed down there, I have to have to finish by doing a personal interview with some members of the bar. And they had scheduled me to do that during trial, during day one of trial. So I knew exactly when it was going to be. And I told them I'd be in trial. And the way I thought openings would go would be John goes, then I go, then the defense, and then the defense again. And if we had done it that way, I would have had time to step yeah. out and take the call. But the way that the judge ended up doing it, which was much better for case presentation, put me in a position where when I stood up, I had 23 minutes to get up there, say my client's opening and sit down and simultaneously jump on a Zoom and walk out the door. I went 26 minutes by the time I walked out to jump on Zoom, the, the board, or the bar governors, whatever it is, um, they had they didn't want to see me anymore. So I have to reschedule it. So that was one detriment, but overall it worked out fine. And, and I know the bar thing will too. So let's go forward now. We've given opening statements. Now we have to call witnesses. Every case, at least in our world, personal injury case has two basic types. It's fact witnesses and experts. Experts in our cases are going to fall into one of two camps. They're either like medical, meaning causation, what, what, what types of injuries happened, what caused them, and damages, like how bad are the injuries, will they be there forever, what future care will be needed, if so, how much. And then you get fact witnesses. Hey, like an eyewitness, I was there, I was in the car, this is what happened, this is what I heard, this is what I felt, best, best done by our clients. And then you've got other fact witnesses like before and after people say who say, you know, who can say with confidence, I've known the person before, so I can tell you what their condition was and I've known them after. This case had all of that, including independent eyewitnesses. John played the video deposition of one of the people to testify that the defendant we were suing did cut off that light. Like he actually waved her ahead, go ahead. And then to his surprise, she, she blew a red light and caused the whole thing. So from a professional, like an experiential perspective this case had it all even though it's an automobile crash it had everything you could have in a personal injury case every type of witness i guess short of a, like an accident reconstructionist on liability because that wasn't that issue but we still got everyone to uh to testify so let's talk about experts because you were talking about dr nicholas sweet he's a neurologist who treated your client only for the traumatic mild traumatic brain injury can you spend a little bit of time because um, we say mild traumatic brain injury and i don't know who our audience is but if you're a personal injury lawyer on the plaintiff side or defense, you probably are familiar with this diagnosis. But if you're just a lawyer in law school, you might not. And you might just incorrectly assume that it means one thing when it means something else. So can you talk about the difficulties and challenges of presenting an MTBI case? So, I mean, look, the problems associated with uh, a mild traumatic brain injury is that the plaintiffs look normal. They look normal. They sound normal. They generally talk normal. And the imaging, for the most part, you know, meaning CT scans and MRIs are normal. Everything's normal. And, you know, that's kind of their big thing is they say normal, 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 normal. And so you've got to kind of bring, I think people have a general understanding now that like, look, with, you're dealing with a traumatic brain injury. I mean, you're dealing with these neurons at such a, you know, microscopic level that they can be injured and damaged. But we saw, you know, in football players, they, they didn't see until post-mortem under a microscope. So you know, what I, what I kind of start with, this is how I determine, like, basically, if you've got a major impact, and this was a major impact, and you've got a loss of consciousness, you've got a brain injury, or wait, really, the CDC describes it as 
an alteration of the brain function, right? And there's basically four, I think there's four reasons or ways to do it. One is the loss of consciousness. But again, you don't have to have a loss of consciousness. You can have like you're confused or dazed, you know, uh, that's another one of the category. If you've got um, retrograde amnesia, meaning you don't remember aspects of the crash, people sometimes get hit, you know, and then they don't remember. Like, I have no idea what happened. I just woke up at the hospital. Like, that's a brain injury, you know. What makes it kind of the mild traumatic brain injury is that the length of time in which the symptoms continue, right? Like a concussion is a, is a, is a traumatic brain injury. Um, the problem is sometimes they resolve if it continues. And what the, and the studies have shown, there's a study that there was a 2019 uh, neurological article that I use where they followed individuals who had brain injuries that presented to level one trauma centers. And they found that of those individuals, 50% were still experiencing symptoms one year later. You know, and, and that's kind of the market. Like if you're still experiencing those symptoms one year later, you know, and it, and it affects nearly every component of, of, you know, of the brain. And then, but it also depends on like where in the brain, what is the dysfunction? A lot of times you see the frontal lobe injuries, you know. When you your client was in his late 20s, he's a young man. Right. Like fit, like in shape from like an outsider looking in. There's nothing about this guy that says he's injured, let alone has a brain injury. So he came in. His girlfriend, the mother of his child came in and they tried to shed light on like the things like the nuance that only they would know. Right. But could explain as best they can, like light sensitivity, irritability or like lack of patience with the baby now, uh, headaches, these kinds of things. These are the things that are like, yeah, it's easier to just toss them away. Right. Defensors toss them away like it's not on the imaging. It's not on a CT. It's not on an MRI. But to John's point, you, it's our responsibility to elicit from our clients or the people that know them not just experts. This is really how it's affecting me. And I'm a young man. I'm scared it's going to get worse. That kind of thing. You know, you know, in our, in our brain injury case, what, a lot of times they, they want to find and, and um, one of the things I think Dorothy Clay Sims has got an exceptional book on like um, deposing the deceptive doctors. And it's like a two volume pack that literally for every type of, of, of doctor, but really a lot of times on the neurologist, the neuropsych and the brain injury side, because these doctors are like, well, it's not from this. You're like, okay, well, let's go through her symptoms. And, and what I do is I like to do this. Is I say each and every one of these symptoms falls under the umbrella of a traumatic brain injury, right? And I say, okay, so you said it's not the traumatic brain injury. I was like, give me the diagnosis that she has that would account for every single one of these symptoms. And they're like, I can't give you one. So like they, so, so that's the idea that they, they don't have an alternate story. They say defense lawyers are paying me. I just gotta say, it's not this, but then, well, what is it? I don't know. What is the well? That's key, most... just so you know, like for the to practitioners out there, there's a difference between what we know as plaintiff's lawyers. Like we know it's a higher paid for opinion. We know that, but we can't just tell a jury that that's not going to land because this is a professional coming in, often a medical doctor. So to John's point, it's about boxing them in to say like you're saying it's not from this, it's not from that, it can't be this. What on earth has all of the evidence? Like what else would fit right. all the evidence we have? Nothing, and, and, and we have. And we had that in the case, and I finally had her admit that the client had a mild traumatic brain injury, you know, at deposition, which she described that I was firing bullets at her through a Zoom screen. Jordan's like, wait, like, that's how, that's how you felt? Through a, through a computer screen? You were so scared? He was like, she was like, I was terrified. And it's like, no, you had to admit, you know, that's the thing. And you get them into a position, and, and I, yeah, you can't say the hired gun, but when you show how much money some of these people make, what you do is you say, okay, this is your opinion. You show how ridiculous it is and then say, isn't it true you've been you've been paid 50 grand in this case? You know, I have a case where, you know, separately, a doctor for the first time ever in my career said, if the injury event did not occur, 
my client, despite not having years of treatment, was going to get all of this. The next 10 years that she's been undergoing treatment, she was going to get that anyway. Oh, that's a good I've, I mean, I've never had a doctor do that. And he's, and th that's all his real, like his opinions are, I don't even know what he's, his, his expertise is, but he's been, and he's paid, been paid almost $40,000, not including trial. So by the time he comes to trial, be like, isn't it true you charged $50,000 for this case? You know, and, and I think the jury's going to get that. I said, because I'm going to ask him in front of the jury, what's the winning lottery tickets for the Powerball drawing coming up? I was like, you're psychic. You obviously can read the future. So I want to know what, what are they? I'll get wow. an objection. I'll get it withdrawn, but. So in the in the trial that we just had for my client, the driver, what was pretty interesting and I, I thought might have been a problem. Now, the verdict tells us it wasn't because the jury was sophisticated enough to parse it out. But going into the trial, I thought it was going to be a problem. Was this my client, the driver, definitely lost consciousness. In fact, the passenger, John's client, testified in deposition and then at trial that when he looked over after the crash, he thought my client was dead. So if anyone were to have a mild traumatic brain injury presented to the jury, you would think it'd be my client because obviously the loss of consciousness qualifies, but my client uh, didn't pursue that. So we didn't present it. So we had this case where the, the best eyewitness evidence of who lost consciousness and probably should be the TBI was not the person claiming it. It was the person who was much more required, much more subtle and nuanced. Then you've got a situation where my client hurt, obviously his head, his head was uh, banged up. He had marks on it. We had photos. He hurt his neck sore obviously it's a huge impact uh he hurt his right knee it was swollen we had pictures of all the bruising and he hurt his ankle and, and not just hurt it he had tears of three different ligaments um he developed post-traumatic arthritis in it but he's a barber uh, i bring up the barber because he's on his feet all day so the defendant tried to seize on that but this was the first time i had a case where i just walked into trial and obviously with my client's blessing and he understood strategically it made the most sense could i argue he still had a traumatic brain injury of course could I argue the neck was a big deal because it lingered for a while? He had to do like 38 PT visits before it truly resolved. Of course. Knee, same thing. His knee was swollen. It still kind of gives him issues. But I wanted the jury to focus on what was most significant for him. Because I think by focusing the jury's attention, you increase the likelihood that they'll understand it. Whereas when you dilute their attention and you're asking them to consider all these different body parts, some are permanent, some are not, I think it loses its efficacy. So in this case, I strategically told them, it's really just an ankle. So we hired, didn't hire, he treated with a podiatrist who we then paid to come in and testify, Dr. Jamie Carbonell. And he did such a great job explaining the significance of the injuries, how they could not have been caused by just normal wear and tear, by being a barber standing on his feet. Our client had previously testified that before the crash, he was active. He was a former baseball player. So he, now he's in like adult softball leagues. He was in adult basketball leagues, regularly participating. Um, and you know his mom and, and girlfriend talked about that, but he couldn't do those things anymore. So the defense tried to like use our expert, the treater, to say, well, couldn't it have been from jumping and sudden moves? And you know they were trying to make what they could have been. But Dr. Carbonell did a great job explaining why none of that could be caused for it. Our client did have, my client did have plantar fasciitis on the bottom of his foot where it connects to the heel, and that definitely could have been caused by his job. But none of the other things, they were all traumatic and he had been recommended surgery. He had multiple injections just to temporarily help with the pain. He had been recommended multiple surgical procedures. One was a scope, uh, an arthroscopic surgery, more limited in downtime. He could get back on his feet quicker, literally and figuratively. And that was a big deal because, you know, we didn't make a wage loss claim in this case, but he is the breadwinner for his family. So having some substantial surgery when you're a barber, nobody's paying you when you're not working. So 
it was a big consideration for him beyond also the natural apprehension and fear we have asking to be put under the knife. It's a big decision to make. And he never got the surgery. And in fact, in my client's case, there was like a two year gap where he like his between his last consult with Dr. Carbono said, you need surgery versus when he went back to even get a second follow up. We had a pandemic for about a year of it. I thought the defense did a pretty effective job of explaining, yeah, yeah, they want to make a big deal of the pandemic, but that was only a year. What about the other 12 or 18 months, whatever? I think they did a good job, but the jury saw, like, this was our position, pretty simply. Once a doctor tells you you're permanently injured and the only thing that's going to repair you is surgery, you don't need to go back every week, every month, or even every year. You really only need to go back when you want the surgery. Um, and so that's kind of the, the thread we pulled on it. Ultimately, I want to now kind of come towards the close of the case to be respectful of our audience's time because you and I could spend all week talking about it. But there's two components. We gave closings. John used a presentation, um, like a Canva or PowerPoint. I chose not to. John asked for an understandingly so. He had multiple body parts. He asked for substantially more than I did for my client. John asked for a little over $7 million. I asked for a little over $2 million. So the jury kind of had this interesting dynamic, two different people, two different lawyers, two different presentation styles, two different asks, um, and it ended up working out just fine. Um, Mary Eck, or Mary X, Mary Sheedy predicted accurately, as she usually does, who the four person would be. She was right. Um, and it was a great outcome. Obviously, the verdicts speak for themselves. I mean, they're substantially higher than the clients ever got offered. They're nearly, you know, basically 800000 apiece. Um which to me is a significant sum of money. And, you know, it's, it's potentially life-changing money. And I don't mean that in like a lottery sense. I mean, they're like, they can get the surgery and the care that they need. They're not going to have to worry about the things that uh, they shouldn't have otherwise had to worry about, but for the crash. So, Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting thing. You know, I think the jurors, so the night before we had closings, one of the jurors was like, do we even need to like answer all the questions? Can we just write a number at the bottom, you know? Um, I was the law firm administrator who I don't want to. Yeah. Well, when you say administrator, he's the guy who runs the firm. He's this yeah. like the CEO. Massive, massive AM law firm. I don't even want to say how big uh, he runs the whole thing. And he was on our jury. So, yeah, he's going to have a good story, uh, you know, at the, uh, the holiday party about having him serving as a juror. But, you know, I think they in, in a jokingly manner said like i was crazy for how much money i asked for but i mean I, you know when, when i break it down it's just, it's not really that much I, I like a per diem argument i give a formula i did three separate injuries so i had the formula they said yeah they called it the fisher formula which was funny um you know and then jordan kind of and they were like but it made jordan seem more reasonable when he had one injury i had three and he asked for one third of what i asked for so it's like it doesn't make sense to me so they ended up doing what we didn't want to do, but they basically gave the clients nearly the same amount. Um, I think definitely for the non-economics, they gave them the same, which, you know, that's just a, I don't know if juries are, you know, I respect everything the jurors do. I, I don't, do my best to present it, but I think it was, I think it was a great result, like Jordan said. And, and, and it's true because we filed proposals for settlement in Florida, which means we clearly got more than 25%. I mean, we were willing to take $20,000 and $30,000 and the insurance company said, no, you know, and, and to date, they still never even offered the policy limits. They kind of yeah. were like, well, if you'll take it, we may get them to offer it. I'm like, that's not how it works, man. You guys right. are the one that did this. So we're, we're potentially looking at tacking on another, you know, 400, 500 grand in attorney's fees on top um, to, to get that thing over 2 million. So imagine that an insurance company could have paid $50,000, tried to push us to trial and they get hit for 2 million. And, and that's where it's like, it's not the plaintiff's lawyers that are not like, we're the ones, if we try to be reasonable and then you're just like, 
go we'll go see and then what happens then you get kicked in the mouth you're like oh juries are out of control like no it's this is what you asked for right people of the community recognize life is precious like they know the insurance company's bullshit like and i don't think they're putting up with it anymore you know and they've got a taste of what it feels to be locked down in your home and taken away and not being able to go out they all had those personal experiences they had during covid so i think when someone's stuck in their house and not going to do those things and that's taken away from them they can kind of sympathize or maybe I should say empathize because they've been in those shoes. And I, I see we're seeing bigger and bigger verdicts. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. So me either. Well, like I said, we could probably talk about this for a week, but let's be respectful of our audience's time. Um, it's been a while since we did one. So we wanted to get this out timely based, based on when the verdict was rendered. So stay tuned for future content. Um, we're going to be trying to put it out every other week, get back to our normal cadence and as always, if you have any questions or if you want to recommend a guest or you'd like to hear join the podcast, we're always open to input. You can email marketing at yourchampions.com or just DM us on any of our social platforms. So that's it for now. Tune in next time. Thank you. All right, guys. See you next time. One, two, three, four. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Great moments are born from great opportunity.